Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next Big Thing in Health, a podcast from AHIP. I'm your co-host, Matt Isles. And I'm Laura Evans. Today, our guest is Catherine McPherson, Senior Vice President of Healthcare Strategy and Development and Chief Nutrition Officer with Mom's Meals. Catherine is responsible for ensuring Mom's Meals nutrition solutions meet the needs of its partners by designing clinical programs that meet their strategic objectives. At Mom's Meals, our mission is to improve life through better nutrition at home. Through tailored meal benefits designed to meet the unique needs of their members, we have helped health plans realize cost savings through fewer readmissions, shorter inpatient stays, less emergency department visits, and improved outcomes. Learn more at momsmeals.com. Catherine, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Matt and Laura. Thanks for having me. I've been really excited uh, for you to join the podcast. I know, um, you know, AHIP and our members have worked a lot with you um, and there's so much innovation happening um, in this space, but maybe you could just start and tell us a little bit more about your organization, Mom's Meals, um, and how did your organization come to be and, and what are your goals right now? Sure, happy to do that. Thanks, Matt. So Mom's Meals, we are the only national provider of medically tailored refrigerated home delivered meals. So we reach every address in the US, including Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico. Um, our meals are medically tailored. So they're going to meet the nutritional needs of individuals based on the conditions that they may have. We, we came to be in a, in a pretty interesting way. So we've been around for 22 years, uh, believe it or not, but we were founded by uh, two families. So one family, there is a mom of mom's meals and I'll tell you her story. And I'll tell you the story of our name. So Barb Anderson, you know, and Rick Anderson are, are you know, the co-founders and uh, Barb, you know, was, was a member of the Sam's generation. She was taking care of her mother who was aging in place with a chronic condition and her mother-in-law. And at the same time, she had uh, two sons off at college who were college athletes. And, you know, everyone was losing weight. And she said, what can I do to, to take better care of my family and their nutrition? And she started to prepare large portions of family favorite meals and deliver those to her family members on the weekends and stock their refrigerator, stock their freezers. And, you know, at, at the same time, she could kind of check in on her sons at college too. So that was, um, that's how we got our start. You know, her friends said, I, I wish there was a service like this for my family. Um, and it really, uh, from there, uh, you know, we enrolled as Medicaid providers in the state of Iowa, you know, where our, our home office is. And, and that's really where we got our start in healthcare. And then just, you know, as the need continued um, throughout healthcare, uh, we've continued to grow along with that. And you really expanded your mission. I know you and your organization talk about food as medicine, which is such an important thing these days. We really need to think about that. And so whether it's for chronic conditions like diabetes, maternal health, mental health, and aging in general, how does Mom's Meals try to use food as medicine? Yeah, well, that really depends on the person and his or her conditions. So if you think about who we serve, we serve older adults who qualify for long-term services and supports or home and community-based services. So they require institution level care, but when services come to their home, they're able to remain independent at home for as long as possible. So these are older adults and people with disabilities. So in that case, we're using meals to maintain strength um, and good health for independence. Uh, you know, we're, we're very likely 
uh, also working with um, better treatment of a chronic condition. So helping someone to really maintain health, maintain strength, maintain independence. And the, those programs are in Medicaid. So if we keep thinking about the Medicaid population, we also serve um, adults with chronic conditions uh, like heart failure or diabetes, uh, where food is part of that treatment plan. Now, uh, just being a dietitian for me for over 20 years, food's always been part of the, of the plan of care, uh, but medically tailored meals or meals delivered to the home just makes that as, as easy as possible. Especially in Medicaid, we very often see a mix of clinical needs because of chronic conditions uh, along with social needs. We serve women and children, so maternal health programs, high-risk pregnancies, um, childhood health, you know, kids at risk for diabetes, um, who have obesity, um, maybe have high lead levels. And then we also serve people discharging from the hospital. That's on both the, the Medicaid and the Medicare side. So uh, helping to prevent a 30-day readmission, helping people to rest and recover after discharge, that's another way to use food as medicine. And really, um, you know, Medicare Advantage, kind of where we see the, the most use today is um, the management of chronic conditions, because that's where the cost is in Medicare. Um, you know, these are our, our, our folks who are 65 and up. Um, that's when you tend to develop chronic conditions. So 80% of Medicare members have at least one chronic condition and 70% have two or more. And just if you're not addressing uh, sort of the diet part of the equation, there's a missed opportunity and, and you're, not, you're not helping that individual to stay as well managed as possible. So food can be part of this preventative um, you know, lifestyle medicine approach in addition to uh, the medical care, the tests and the medications that may be required. But it's a comparatively lower cost solution, something that not only fills a clinical need, but oftentimes an unmet social need, both on the Medicaid and the Medicare Advantage side. Yeah, a preventative solution indeed. Let me ask uh, another question about that. Well, how does this work? How does this whole program even work? Yeah, well, um, it depends who the partner is. Most of our partners are managed care organizations. And so managed care organizations uh, often will support their higher risk members. So when I say higher risk, those are folks who have the chronic conditions, maybe multiple chronic conditions, but they're more likely to be admitted to the hospital. Um, so they're, they're gonna have a team of care or case managers that are providing care and you know, coordination of benefits um, for this high-risk population. And that's typically um, where the referral into a meals program happens. It could happen when somebody discharges from a hospital, they're getting that coordination of care after discharge from a discharge planner. And that's typically, a, again, a nurse case manager who's going to make a referral into the meals program. Um, it could be through a data poll. And that's sort of kind of what we're seeing now. That's a, a bit newer, looking at who's at highest risk for admission uh, to the hospital and who might have one or more chronic conditions, inpatient stays, multiple medications, and just saying, this is a group that we want to qualify for meals and, and passing that to a team or to mom's meals to do that outreach. So those are different ways where we are connected with the members. And then from there, we um, establish uh, service typically in 24 to 72 hours to any address in the country. So people are getting their, uh, you know, their meals rapidly and we're, we're um, just continuing to serve them on an ongoing way with the program. Amazing. Yeah, that's very cool. Catherine, you mentioned uh, in one of your uh, comments uh, earlier that this is sort of a lower cost solution perhaps versus uh, different kinds of you know, pharmaceuticals or other treatments, but we also know how important it is to have a sort of rigorous sort of evidence base and 
um, uh, looking at what works and what doesn't work. So maybe you could share a little bit about what the evidence is behind this approach to food as medicine and whether or not there are you know, case studies out there that are particularly helpful or other things that you know, our audience should be aware of. Sure, actually food as medicine is the area of social need or SDOH with the most research supporting the intervention. Um, I can point uh, you know, listeners to a recently published food as medicine action plan from the Aspen Institute and CHILPI and that's the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation at Harvard. Um, and also you know, collaborators from Tufts all worked on that action plan. And that contains a really nice summary of research around uh, food as medicine and, and published data. But what we see in published data, you know, we're looking, you know, with a post-discharge meal, let's say, at preventing um, readmission to a hospital. So this is a short-term solution with a very high ROI. You can provide a few weeks of meals and prevent, you know, a, a $30,000 uh, readmit. So what we see is anything from 25 to 50% reduction in readmissions with a post-discharge meal. And I think that that's getting recognized by health plans because about um, 67, 69% of MA plans, decent plans, a little higher, um, you know, have now a, a, a meals benefit. Um, on the chronic care side, we're trying to get upstream of that admission in the first place and prevent an admission. And what we see there, you know, these programs tend to be a little bit longer. They're kind of medium length. I would say 12 weeks um, could be six months in some cases to help someone better manage a condition. And we can see anything from 25% to a 60% uh, reduction in that admission. So we just um, completed a case study um, with a health plan where, you know, we provided 13 weeks of meals. These were individuals with a primary diagnosis of behavioral health. Uh, issues. They also had, you know, some clinical issues along, uh, clinical health issues, uh, physical health issues along with that. And um, there was a, a 60% reduction in total cost of care, mostly avoiding ED utilization and inpatient stays. So we've got not only published data, which again, I can point you to that, that Chilpy paper, but also uh, just excellent case studies um, that we've been able to bring forward. And Mom's Meals uh, publishes all of those case studies on our website. And that's really, you know, kind of the, the real world. Um, you know, the published data is great, but sometimes there's a lot of controls and you know, I would say structure that might not be there, um, you know, when you kind of bring it live into a, a health plan environment. But um, the case studies are really where, you know, you can get a good feel for what you can expect from a return on investment and a sort of a lower total cost of care and avoidance of, of unnecessary utilization. Yeah. And Catherine, speaking of cost, we know the cost of food can be a real issue for people who are trying to feed themselves and their families these days, especially these days. What are the opportunities and challenges you all find when it comes to delivering food through Medicaid and Medicare when we're talking about particularly these costs? Sure. Um, so one of the, the challenges, you know, and I can start with Medicaid, is around uh, payment or, or how, how are meals going to be paid for um, by the health plan. And so in Medicaid, you know, the couple options that we see, we see waivers, we see the 1915s, uh, the 1115 demo waivers, um, those may or may not include meals, but if they do include meals, that's one way uh, to ensure payment. Um, it takes a long time to, to get a new waiver in place. And, you know, waiver renewals, they might be in place for five years, so you even get a change to a waiver could take a number of years. Um, then there are uh, value-added benefits, and I would say that's um, commonly a, a more common way today of, of paying for meals, but 
those are taken out of admin dollars for the MCO. And so they are limited in budget, um, can be limited in scope. And when those funds run out, there could be an allocated budget for the year for value-added benefits. Everyone who could be impacted by that benefit might not be able to take advantage of it. Um, we also have in lieu of services. So we're, we're seeing a statewide program in California called Community Supports. That's under um, CalAIM. We're seeing a medically tailored meals in lieu of pilot in New York right now. Um, it's a great way to say we're going to pay for something like meals. Um, it could be housing, could be transportation, whatever that need is, in lieu of uh, something like personal care attendant hours that could have gone toward food prep or in lieu of emergency department visits or hospital stays. And um, that's, you know, I would say there is um, the potential to pay there. But again, sometimes uh, you need kind of that statewide uh, in lieu of program to, to kind of put the structure in place for the MCOs to, to participate. Uh, so all of those are potential avenues that are out there today, but they're not as easy uh, as we would like them to be, or there are limitations. And so it would be really wonderful if uh, we could have the ability to pay for uh, food and medically tailored meals as um, out of medical spend. If it could be covered as a medical benefit in Medicaid um, because of the substantial cost savings data that's available, it, it really would make uh, everything a lot easier and would make programs more uniform across the country. So it wouldn't be state by state, it would be part of the you know, kind of set of mandated medical services um, that you would provide in, in Medicaid. Yeah, you're, um, you're really speaking my policy wonk language there, but it's so <laughs> important in terms of making a difference. And I know AHIP's yeah. been very active in terms of advocating for benefit flexibility and counting um, you know, these important activities you know, towards uh, on the medical side, because as, as you said, with food as medicine, I, this is not just administrative costs, but uh, really important to think a little bit differently um, about it. So we here at AHIP do a ton of advocacy on so many different, you know, legislative, regulatory issues. Are there particular pieces of legislation that you think would be helpful to advance goals here? Are there any upcoming areas that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, well, first, um, thank you to, to Matt and the, the AHIP team for all the great advocacy work that you do. You know, it's really important work, and, um, and you know, we, we for one, um, absolutely appreciate that. We are. We, we have our own uh, policy agenda as well. Um, you know, you mentioned flexibilities. I think in Medicare, we do see really nice flexibilities with the new um, SSBCI benefits, so there are a lot of ways to, you know, kind of pay for meals in Medicare. It could be supplemental benefit that's uniform flexible, it could be under the VBID program, could be under SSBCI benefits. Um, one, there is one piece of legislation that would add just a, even a bit more flexibility to Medicare Advantage, and that's the um, Addressing Social Determinants in Medicare Advantage Act, or HR 4074. And you know, I mentioned previously about 80% of, of uh, Medicare members have at least one chronic condition, but if you don't have a chronic condition today, you wouldn't qualify for SSBCI. Um, because you couldn't qualify based on social need alone. And so this piece of legislation would um, enable folks who have low income or um, you know, they're deemed appropriate for this benefit based on uh, social need alone. So it'd be food insecurity, for example, um, because the treatment for food insecurity is, is food. The treatment for malnutrition is food. Uh, and so you know, that should be enough to qualify someone for an SSBCI benefit. And um, you know, this would just enable 
um, more individuals with access to uh, really helpful supplemental benefits. So that, that's one. I would say that another one um, that we're really interested in is the SNAP Plus Act. So this is HR 6338. Now, because of the vulnerable uh, members that we serve today, a lot of Medicaid members, a lot of dual eligible members, um, they qualify for SNAP or EBT benefits. And uh, SNAP benefits really do go underutilized, um, especially by seniors today, and that's unfortunate. Um, but we still get asked, I would say many folks on a weekly basis, can I use my SNAP benefit to pay for mom's meals? Um, so this would be for folks who maybe don't have access to a paid benefit, but they want to pay out of pocket for mom's meals. Um, and they want their SNAP dollars to go toward it. And today they can't um, because uh, our meals are fully prepared. And so fully prepared refrigerated meals aren't eligible uh, for SNAP today. But the SNAP Plus Act would eliminate the 50% gross revenue threshold uh, for prepared meals. So if today, because more than 50% um, of our revenue comes from fully prepared food, we can't participate. But in the future, uh, you know, should that act pass, we would be able, we would be able to participate. So we're interested in that piece of legislation as well. So Catherine, this is a, such an incredible program and helps so many people I know. Um, for, for our listeners who might be interested in learning more about Mom's Meals and, and wanting more information, how can they get in touch with your organization and find out more? Sure. Anyone can go to momsmeals.com. Uh, you're going to find our latest case studies. You're going to find access to you know the ability to order meals or just more information about our programs. You can follow us on LinkedIn. We're always uh, posting sort of you know, new pieces of research, new case studies, and also providing updates about where we're going to be uh, presenting. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well. But um, speaking of where we'll be presenting, um, we are going to be at the AHIP 2020 meeting here, the, uh, you know, just coming up in, at the end of June in Las Vegas. And we're really excited to co-present with um, Inland Empire Health Plan, IEHP, um, with a very successful six-month pilot that they had and um, some wonderful outcomes for their members with heart failure. I won't tell you um, their return on investment. I won't tell you their total cost of care reduction. You have to show up at the meeting and, and listen to find out, but some, some very compelling results. That's a good tease. That is a great teaser. Yes. And I'm so looking forward uh, to, to seeing you in person and, and so glad uh, that you're able to you know, present the great uh, case study with IEHP. Um, that's, that's terrific. We've covered a lot of different areas related to um, food as medicine. And I know we've been thinking a lot at AHIP around you know, big trends and, and what might be next. So I, I think you might know we end our podcast with a, a similar question to all our uh, participants. So what do you think is the next big thing in health, Catherine? Yeah, thanks for that question. For, for me, I think instead of a new product or a kind of a new offering, what I see as the next big thing is coordination and care. And this is, you know, we've got a lot of wonderful and compelling products. We've got a lot of interventions that work, but how do we, you know, how do we make those work better? Um, and I think we're seeing this in, you know, for example, the final rule from CMS uh, for the MA and DSNP plans with more integration requirements for DSNPs and requiring DSNPs to screen for social determinants of health needs. So just this coordination of care um, between Medicare and Medicaid, that's one example, but also I think is the next, even the next big thing, because of course we've been working on that for a long time, but the next big thing is 
more between um, providers and managed care organizations. As we continue to move down the path of um, value-based contracting, more delegation um, to providers, thinking about food and other SDOH-related benefits like transportation, you know, the vision is really the providers are the ones talking with members about their diabetes. They're seeing what their latest A1C results are. And they are prescribing medications. And you can just say, where's your preferred pharmacy? And you can go pick up your new medication. But it would be really wonderful if providers knew about and were able to leverage you know, some of the fantastic supplemental benefits offered by Medicare, uh, Medicare Advantage and Medicaid MCOs today, like home delivered meals, to be able to, to use that as a tool in their toolbox for treatment for their patients and be able to say, you know, I'm going to send in your new drug, but I'm also going to put in a prescription for medically tailored meals for you. Um, and so to enable that kind of um, coordination of care, um, you know, between MCOs and providers, I think is really the next big thing. And how do we, like, we're, we're scratching the surface. We've just had three years of SSBCI benefits, and we're seeing some wonderful innovation um, by managed care organizations in bringing new benefits to really help their members. Um, and I think that that reach can only be extended when uh, providers and their contracted networks are educated on all of those benefits and, and really able to pull the lever easily on triggering that benefit for the, the patients that they're seeing covered by the MCO. So I think that's um, what's next. Certainly a lot needs to happen. Financial incentives need to align, but we need to be easy to prescribe you know, food as medicine as easy as we prescribe drugs. Yeah, making some good progress, but a lot more work to be done. But thank you so yeah. much, Catherine, for being with us today. Really, really interesting conversation. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you guys are doing great work. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks so much.